For some time in the Gospel of John, John 7 and 8, we have been tracing the interchange between Jesus and the crowd and Jesus and the religious leaders at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles commemorated Israel's time in the wilderness. And during that feast, you recall that there's the lighting of the lamps where they're remembering how God, with the pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day, led the children of Israel and protected them during all that time in the wilderness. And so when Jesus declares that he's the light of the world, he's declaring that he's the very presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel, here to lead us and to protect us. As we cross over into chapter 9 of John, Jesus is still in Jerusalem. And we know despite his teaching, the darkness of unbelief is strong. It's strong among the very people that you would expect to be lovers of the light. It's not uncommon for the most religious people to be the greatest enemies of gospel truth. Here are the guardians of biblical revelation, the guardians of worship, are the leading enemies of Jesus. Jesus is taught he's the light of the world, and now he's going to demonstrate it in a way that's impossible to deny. And in spite of the miracle we're about to read about, there are some that will persist in their determined unbelief. We're in John 9. We're going to read the first 25 verses of this chapter. John 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, that means my teacher, my great one, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said, It is he. Others said, No, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Now, the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Signs. There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight 
until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now... I see. It's really a tough thing to cut off right there. The story goes on, and um, Andrew Bates is going to be doing the second half of this chapter. But for time's sake, we're ending there at this climax statement, though I was blind, now I see. Several things we learn from these verses. First, in verses 1 through 7, we see human suffering over against God's works. Human suffering and God's works. In verses 8 through 12, we see unbelief and verified miracles. And then in verses 13 through 25, we see man-made religion and the messianic Savior. So once again, we're going to get a view of who Jesus is and of what God is doing through Him in our world. The first area that we really want to address is human suffering and God's works. The passage starts off, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The disciples' question gets at one of the things that troubles us most about our world. Why do people suffer? I mean, people like this man, blind from birth. So much of our living depends on our sight. And think of the, the grief his parents experienced when they realized their newborn son could not see. All of a sudden, what was a joyful thing, as he begins to come along, they realize he can't see anything. How difficult it had to have been to rear him and to educate him, to find some way for him to survive. And he's reduced to begging for him year after year of darkness with no hope of it ever being different, just trying to cope. Our natural question, especially if we believe in a good, all-powerful God, is why? Why should this man suffer so? And we ask the question because we are moral beings. We're created in God's image, and we have a sense of, of right and wrong and of justice, and our sense of justice kicks in and won't let go. What did he ever do to deserve this? What did his parents do? And that's where the disciples start. Did his own sin bring this blindness on? Well, that seems impossible since he was blind from birth. Then maybe his parents sinned, but, but then it doesn't seem right that he had to suffer for what his parents did wrong. Now, it is true that sins that we commit can bring us trouble. Every good father disciplines his kids, and we would expect our heavenly father to do the same with us. 
So whenever we do hit the hard stretches, it's worth making sure that we're not living in a way that we know is wrong and needs to be made right. When we're holding on to, to sin in our lives, suffering often moves us to get right before it's too late. But not every calamity and sorrow is because of some particular sin. We shouldn't think that about ourselves, and we shouldn't think that about other people. It's also true that our sin affects others, especially those who look to us to train them and lead them. So parents can teach their children to do right, and parents can teach their children to do wrong by their example. The sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of human history resulted in everyone who descended from them being sinners by birth and sinners by choice. We can't really blame them for our sin because we've made that choice as well. Their sin brought God's curse on all creation, including us, and hence all the suffering and dying that is part of our world and, and to us may even seem natural. Because of the curse on our sin, we are broken people living in a broken world. But Jesus wants us to understand that suffering has a greater, more positive purpose than just punishment. Romans 8 tells us that God subjected the creation to the curse, to futility, in hope, in hope of what He was going to be doing in the universe. And that is this, that where, where Jesus turns His disciples' attention. This man's blindness wasn't a result of his sin. It wasn't the result of his parents' sin. And while it reflected the brokenness of our sin-cursed world, its primary purpose the primary purpose for his blindness was for God to reveal clearly his works. You say, well, how is that? Well, God's character shines more brightly in those he heals and rescues from trouble than in those who need no help at all. God will display his compassion, his power, his healing works in the person of this blind man when Jesus miraculously gives him sight. Experiencing this miracle of receiving physical sight leads to his gaining spiritual sight so that he comes to trust fully in Jesus. That would change him forever. That would reset his eternal destiny, making him a child of God who would inherit the eternal kingdom. I will guarantee you this man who was blind and was made to see, never regretted his blindness when he sees what the healing that Jesus brought him, brought to him the salvation that would be forever. All those years of blindness, bad as they were, could not compare to the joy and glory of what this man would receive. It was his blindness that opened the door to overwhelming blessings for him and for all who saw what Jesus did for him and believed. And I'll guarantee you, of all the people that went about seeing that day, he was the one most thankful to be able to see. When you lose something or when you don't have something, then you value it more once you have it. Now, we all struggle in the long years of suffering. We grow discouraged and cynical with the pileup of wounds and sorrows, of calamities and disease. You know, when we're young, maybe we dodge the bullet a little bit more, but as we grow older, more and more of these troubles come home to us. And sometimes God seems cruel and unjust to us, 
and sin's scourge and impossible burden to bear. But we mustn't forget how God often uses these very afflictions that weigh us down to display His mighty works. How many have come to the end of their self-reliance because of suffering, opening their hearts to desire and to trust the Savior? And many a saint has found suffering an eloquent platform from which to share the good news to caregivers and family and friends. There, there really are thousands, tens of thousands, likely millions of people that will inhabit the heavenly city forever, that will be part of the eternal kingdom, that are there. The turning point was suffering and how God used it to open their eyes. Many a hospital say has turned into multiple opportunities for gospel witness. In fact, I'm convinced a lot of times as we see different members of the church that have various maladies as they're sent to the hospital, they're sent there on mission. They're sent there to display what a, a believer, how a believer endures, how a believer holds on to Jesus, how a believer doesn't become just self-centered when they're suffering, but is, but is looking out for the needs of others as they share the gospel and as they display the, the peace that Jesus gives. That's a powerful testimony. Look, if everything's going great for you, we expect you to be happy. If, if everything's going like you expected it to go, we expect you to endure. But when it's hard, then, then the light of Jesus shines more brightly. God uses, uses suffering in these ways. First Peter tells us that our suffering has a purifying effect on our lives. Paul tells Timothy it trains us to endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. He testifies to uh, believers in Philippi, he's writing from prison, that suffering has brought him into closer fellowship with Christ, and it hasn't hindered the gospel at all. It's actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. But there's yet more when we look at the bigger picture of human history. In Romans 8, we read, I consider, this is Paul talking about it, that the sufferings of this present time, and, and look, Paul was no ivory tower saint. He was, he was no coddled um, you know, mama's boy. He, he had been through horrendous suffering like most of us haven't endured yet. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the shining splendor that's to be revealed to us. In other words, our suffering is not just connected to immediate good, it's also connected to long-term good. Jesus came into the world to display God's saving works. But it was a path through suffering that led to victory. Not just our suffering, but His. And not just His victory, but ours. He suffered in our place. He rose again. And because He rose again, we will rise again as well. In John 9, 4 through 7, Jesus says, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He had limited time on the earth. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The work God the Father had sent Jesus into the world to do 
was to shine light and life where darkness and death reigned. His was a short ministry of three and a half years, but he displayed God's power to save, and his saving work continues to this very day. You might ask why the mud made from saliva and dirt. We don't know. Sometimes Jesus healed people with just a word or a touch. But what Jesus does here reminds us of God's creating man from the dust of the ground. And the God who can make a living man from dirt can certainly cause the eyes of a blind man to see. And John notes that Siloam means sent, perhaps reminding us how often Jesus said of himself that he was the sent one of the Father. And it's for sure that if you go to Jesus and wash, you will receive your sight. The way Jesus performed this miracle was with no fanfare. You wouldn't have even known it was happening or why until the blind man came back seeing. You just see a blind man stumbling on his way to the pool. He washes. He's ecstatic because he can see. And it's like, okay, so what happened there? How did it happen? The man just did what Jesus told him to do. Those who take Jesus at his word and rely on it gain their sight. They're no longer in the darkness. And you can be sure that this man rejoiced over his ability to see more than any of the vast numbers of people who had always been able to see. So what troubles have you asking God why? It's the natural question to ask. It's essentially what the disciples asked. Why? We don't tend to ask it quite as much about other people as we ask it about ourselves when we're going through it, but we ask why. So what troubles are those? What sins has your suffering brought to mind that you know you need to confess and forsake? Let's take care of that. What gospel opportunities could your suffering create? I mean, what if you looked at it not just in terms of what you're going through in terms of suffering, but, but what kind of platform it would give you to share Jesus? And then in what ways does your suffering, does suffering increase the value and joy of being released from it? We see that in the short term when we've been ill and we get well. We see it in the long term when we go through all the sufferings of this present age and we enter into the next in the fullness of God's blessing. Well, the next picture we see in verses 8 through 12 is unbelief over against verified miracles. The neighbors, verse 8, of those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, a man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. It was hard for the crowd to get their heads around the idea that the man born blind could now see. Some account for it by just mistaken identity. He just looks like the man that was born blind. But, but he himself dispels that theory, convincing them that he is actually the one who was blind. So that leaves the question of how it's even possible 
Many people today believe miracles are impossible. They therefore assumed that earlier generations that reported miracles are just more gullible than we are. There has to be some other explanation for what they thought was a miracle. But these people in John 9 are just as reluctant to believe a miracle has happened as any modern person would be. We wrongly assume ourselves to be superior thinkers to people of the past. A tour of any social media site should disabuse us of such a notion, or for that matter, a survey of what often passes for wisdom in the educational institutions of our day. We're not so smart after all. They can't believe the miracle has happened, so they ask how it happened. He tells them, but nothing about the process accounted for his recovery of sight. The process was not the key. The person who did the miracle was. We live in an age that declares miracles never happened. Why? Because it's impossible for them to happen. You know what we call that? Circular reasoning. The definition of a miracle, the definition of a miracle is a mighty work too great to be possible. Historically, miracles can't happen except when they happen. If you could explain it away, then it wouldn't be a miracle. Well, what was the point of this miracle? The point is that Jesus is the light of the world. If you don't believe the words, perhaps you believe the works. That he has the power to remove blindness, or for that matter, any other malady. In fact, in his ministry, he's going to even raise the dead. Jesus displays in his earthly ministry that as God in the flesh, he has both the power and the compassion to lift the effects of the curse, to remove every sickness, every defect, and to free human beings even from death itself. In other words, he shows that when God promises that one day he will wipe away all tears along with the sickness, death, and sorrow that caused those tears, he is not boasting about what he can't deliver. He is not a God who looks on human suffering and is not moved to relieve it and more to remove it one day completely and forever. If there are no miracles, there is no gospel because it takes a mighty work, a miracle of God, to rescue us from our sin, suffering, sorrow, and death. And if he's too small to do that, we have no hope. And there is no good news to proclaim, just bad news. The best we can do is bear up under all the pain until we die. So if miracles like this one are for real, why should you not believe that the ultimate rescue God has promised through Christ is also for real? This really is the point of the miracles. Jesus says all kinds of miracles, all kinds of maladies, raises the dead. He demonstrates that, that God can remove all these things from our lives and that one day he'll do so forever. And then second, if God can't bring about miracles, what will you do with Jesus? And where have you set your hope? If you have any hope. 
It, it all rises and falls together. The third thing that we see, and this is where the bulk of the passage is going to go. In fact, next week, this will be what it's about as well, man-made religion and the messianic Savior. Verse 13, we read, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day. That's the day you stop from regular work. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees, remember, they're the separatists. They're the ones, they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in miracles. They believe in angels. And they believe in saying separate from the, the Greek world around them. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Now the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Remember, a sign is a miracle with a message. And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. In other words, he's from God, been sent to us. We've already seen multiple rounds of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. If anything, these men demonstrate that religion cannot save us. It never saved anybody. If anything, it often makes people twofold enemies of the gospel Apostles of hell that cut off the only path of rescue. Because what they're doing is offering a knockoff version of salvation, which is works-based. These enemies of Jesus start with their standard argument. We've seen it before. Jesus did not keep their rules about how to keep the Sabbath. So he could not be from God. Fact is, their Sabbath regulations, they had 78 of them distorted the whole meaning and purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus never broke God's command to keep the Sabbath day holy. He restored it to its proper use. And then there's the miracle itself. How can such a display of divine power come from a man who is a sinner? Even the Pharisees were divided on that point. The problem is that they have elevated their own teaching to the level of scriptural command, and that always leads to distortion of the truth and blindness to the power of God. Many a church and religious institution does not know what the work of God even looks like. They're too busy promoting and defending their own version of holiness. It makes them advocates of a false gospel, a man-made one, instead of the God-given gospel that actually works miracles. They, in essence, preach, keep our rules and you will be saved. No one was ever saved that way. That's just the garden variety works righteousness that's infected every false religion on the planet. The gospel is not about what you must do. It's about what God has done. And this miracle of sight was a free gift from Jesus, not five steps you must take to recover from blindness. Next, some try to disprove that it's even been a miracle, but they fail in that. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received their sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And then John gives us some insight as to why they answered that way. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess that Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So here we get to the core issue. Many people were becoming convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior King that God said would reverse the curse, the Savior King that would rescue us. And these people that believed that were right. Isaiah had prophesied, Isaiah 29, and that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. During his ministry, Jesus healed blind, deaf, lame, and mute. He fulfilled what Isaiah prophesied. But to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah was a dangerous thing. You'd get kicked out of the synagogue. It'd be like you'd be hauled up for church discipline and kicked out. To acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah would overturn the whole system of false religion that these religious leaders had built. It would call them to repent of their sin, just like the rest of the rabble. It would expose their hollow holiness and their unrighteous self-righteousness. They risked losing their high standing in the community and the comfortable living that went with it. So instead of refuting that Jesus is the Messiah, they just attacked those who believed that he is. Kicked them out of the synagogue as if they were heretics and unbelievers. It's a form of persecution. And persecution is not an argument. It's just treating those who love God the way Satan treats them. They have so intimidated people that the blind man's parents are afraid to confirm the simple fact that Jesus healed their son. He's grown now. Ask him. John 9, 24. So for the second time, they called the man who'd been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Well, they've asked him actually to do something that can't be done. You can't glorify God and at the same time dishonor Jesus, whom God has sent. Refusing to credit Jesus with having done this miracle dishonored God because he was doing the works of God. If you dishonor God the Son, you dishonor God the Father who sent him. You dishonor God the Father who gave him these works to perform. If you're going to honor God, you've got to honor Jesus. If you're going to glorify God, you've got to glorify Jesus. Well, the blind man cuts through their theological mumbo-jumbo and to the reality, literally staring them in the face. They want to call Jesus a sinner because he's violated their man-made Sabbath rules. But the fact remains that the man born blind now sees. And he's looking them in the eye. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see.
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about adding more rules to your religious playbook. It's about a Savior mighty to save. The God-man Messiah with power to rescue you and me from what is humanly impossible to escape. That's the gospel. In Christ's time on earth and ever since then, Jesus continues to give sight to the blind and to bring eternal life to those doomed to die for their sins. It's a rescue that pushes past the boundaries of this mortal life into the infinite years of eternity. No one who genuinely trusts in Him is ever the same again. So is the Christianity that you practice about what Christ has done to deliver you or about what you must do to win favor with God and with man? And what evidence can others see in your life of the power of the gospel of Christ to transform people? You know, it really needs to be as, as profound as a man born blind who now can see with 2020 vision. That's what it ought to look like. There ought to be a difference. It ought to be evident that God's work has laid hold of you and has changed you forever. The gospel is only for those who know they need a rescue. And the gospel is that God has provided a Savior who can deliver us from our distress. Those that think they're already okay without Him don't need the gospel and don't want the gospel. And that's what we see in these religious leaders. In our passage, we've seen human suffering offset by God's works. We've seen unbelief that is toppled by verified miracles. And we've seen man-made religion up against the messianic Savior. We need a Savior. We need grace from a Savior. We can't make it on our own was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. God, when we're left on our own, we grope in the darkness. There's just so much we don't understand. There's so many troubles that we carry that we can't escape. Everybody we've ever known, everybody we've ever loved ends up in a grave. And Lord, every one of us is on a dirge march to that same grave. God, we need a mighty Savior. We need a Savior that gives sight to the blind, that gives hearing to the deaf, that makes lame men leap for joy. It gives those who cannot speak the ability to speak eloquent praises to God. We need a God who can speak and the dead are raised. We need a God who can cleanse our hearts and our lives from the sin that infects us and release us from the prison of death and the grave. And Lord, we find that God in Jesus. We thank you for your amazing grace that you have rescued us 
May we be those who share that grace with others. For it's in Christ's name we pray.